Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. Are you an animal lover, musician, mother, daughter? If you are, or someone you love is, Saints for Sinners has a unique medallion just for you. Each Saints medallion is one-of-a-kind and beautifully handcrafted in New Orleans. Saints for Sinners medallions make great gifts for any occasion. Speak to everyone's experiences and passions and offer you and your loved ones a wearable reminder of your saint's guidance, perspective, and comfort. And most of all, the hope your saint should bring to your life. Each medallion is imported from Italy and hand-painted in New Orleans, and you can buy them at saintsforsinners.com. Who's your saint? Take the quiz and find out at saintsforsinners.com. Take the quiz and get a new suggestion. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Jesuitical and Inside the Vatican. This is like the biggest crossover podcast that we have ever done. So I'm your host, Zach Davis, and I am joined by my colleagues, Father James Martin, SJ, fresh from the Synod, uh, Father Sam Sawyer, our editor-in-chief, and Gerard O'Connell, our Vatican correspondent. Ashley's not feeling too well, so she we've given her this recording off. Um, Synod took a lot out of everybody. It seems that it's taking its toll on some people's health. I'm sure you've seen that, Jim, inside the hall. A lot of coughing. Uh, But it's really good to be with all of you. Thank you. Great to to be be here. here. All right. So I just want to set the stage a little bit. So we're recording this on Sunday, October 29th. So last night, uh, late into the night, uh, the Synod voted to approve the final synthesis document. And then this morning, Pope Francis celebrated the closing mass for the first session of the assembly. So we're done, right? You don't have, do you have any more obligations, Jim? Other than uh, bringing it back to the people of God for the next 11 months and coming back in next October, no. Great. I wonder if we could just ask you a little bit, Jim, about uh, your experience inside the Synod Hall. Um, It's been a long month, right? How are your energy levels? Uh, My energy level was fine. Other people were flagging towards the end. Uh, I think there was a lot of um, anticipation of this document towards which we had been moving. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of time, I think people know, uh, for the writers and the drafting committee to to work on it. So it was a little rushed at the end. Uh, but, you know, as you saw by everyone's approval, uh, people were more happy with the final document, the final text, which is about 40, 41 pages. Great. Can you tell us, Jim, a little bit about just, you know, what the daily schedule was like, and particularly as you were reaching the end and focusing on the document in the Senate Hall? I can, because it was pretty similar every day. We got there at 845. We started with a prayer. Uh, And then we went either into our uh, small table groups where we would talk about different topics. There were several modules, which meant several kind of uh, topics, and you changed uh, tables every every module. in the afternoon, we had lunch from uh, 12.30 to 4. Um, there was a little bit of a coffee break, which was actually where a lot of uh, business and kind of connections took place. In the that's what break. I've heard from past mm-hmm. synods. is like, that's where the mm-hmm. real synodality yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, getting to know people and laughing. Uh, and then from we would come back from 4.30 to uh, 7.30. That was kind of a long stretch. And that, again, would either be table group uh, work where we're talking about something or the table itself would do what's called an intervention where they would present to the whole session, the plenary session. 
Uh, and then there were also what were called, they called them free speeches, which were anyone could kind of, uh, you know, uh, sign up and talk to the whole group. At times it was pretty grueling, particularly for me, uh, the time between about six o'clock and 7.30 at the end, where you might hear, you know, maybe 20 interventions uh, on different topics. So you really had to pay attention. One of the things um, in terms of the the, the atmosphere, one of the things that really impressed me was the seriousness with which everybody took this. People were very committed. And when they came for their, say, their three-minute uh, intervention at the table, it was usually written. People were very sincere about it and very conscientious. And certainly when people presented uh, in the plenary sessions, uh, either for the tables, summarizing what the tables had dis discussed or decided, and their own plenary stuff, it was very serious. And I, I really appreciated that. There wasn't anyone who was phoning it in. I mean, some people were tired. But they knew that they were, you know, really talking, in a sense, to the whole church when they were intervening. So I found that very edifying. I'm curious what your take is on the sort of media. I don't, I don't want to use the word blackout, but um, the rules around secrecy that were in, inside the Synod. Yeah, I would say I understand what Francis was trying to do, which was that this was a discernment uh, and people needed the space to do it. I also understand some of the, you know, I'm part of the media, too. I understood some of the media's... Um, concerns that they wanted a little bit more um, information about how things were going and maybe what topics were going on. One of the things I realized by the end was uh, if people had known that they were being recorded or even live streamed, there would have been a lot less honesty and people might not have shared personal stories. And I, I would have certainly edited myself more. But really, when you were talking to people in the room, you were talking to people in the room. I thought that was a big uh, plus for that. Um, so I see both sides. But in the end, I realized what, what Francis was doing. At the beginning, I was a bit unsure, but I came to be convinced that Francis had chosen the right path, because in the past, I have seen uh, reports of what happened in this session and that session, and the risk for this synod was that it would get labeled with one issue, and it's not a single issue synod, and that issue would have been the Pachamama of this Synod, and I am very happy. This when you say Pachamama, this was like a sort of I don't know if you want to in, quickly in, summarize. In the Synod on the Amazon, um, there was this stunt that involved a symbol that had been brought from by some indigenous representatives, and the the stunt of destroying that symbol ended up sort of dominating the news coverage of the entire Synod. Yeah. Yes. It, it, the risk was something would eclipse the central theme, the central purpose of the Synod, and that didn't happen. And I'm very happy about that because it, having read now the document this morning and last night, uh, I really think there's a real big shift underway in the church. And that's very good news for people who are looking for a way of invigorating the church, uh, bringing new opening spaces for people to participate at all levels and in different ways. I, I think it's a very encouraging document, and that's my read of it. Well, and I can also say, you know, having, I arrived in Rome only recently after finishing up a pilgrimage with, uh, that we were leading uh, on behalf of American media. But so watching the coverage, you know, sort of from afar, I've certainly been conscious of how tough it's been in some ways for the team here to cover a process where you couldn't directly talk to the participants. But at the same time, I think you've done a great job of covering it. And I also think that as I've watched the coverage of the Synod unfold, both in the pages of America and in the in Catholic media more broadly, I think that the the tone of the coverage has generally been 
calmer and more reflective than we've seen in previous synods where it's sort of been, what are we supposed to be flipping out about today? And I think that, I, I hope that is to the good of the church and to the good of the synodal process overall. Yeah, it does seem like everyone was well-behaved. I don't know, is that... In terms of the media? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I knew, you know, there were one or two people that I think people know about, but people were very good. And most people said to me at the tables, like, I'm just not talking to anybody. That's because I would get requests from journalists. Can you put me in touch with, for example, interesting women, interesting lay people. And I would always say, I'm happy to pass them along, but they would come to me the next day and say, yeah, I'm not talking to them. And I'd say, well, you know, that's probably makes sense. I know I, I cut you a, a pass for ignoring all of my texts this past thank, month. Thank, it's finally thank, good to see you. Thank after you, very, thank you no. very much. <laughs> so like from our end, what we tried to do is just sort of like bring people along in terms of like illuminating some of the topics that are being discussed, some of the people that work here. Um, we've gotten to talk to some some synod delegates, but do you think it's important for the entire church to like have some knowledge of what was said in the room in order I, to bring this back? I think the document does a good job of that. Um, I think it covers most of the things we said um, and most of the topics that came up. You know, I, one of the things I said at my table when we were talking about what to add for the final document, I said, uh, and this was not an original thought, I would like to add a photo. I'd like to add a photo, add a photo of hmm. the of the the aula, the Paul the Sixth aula. We're right up the street from that with everyone sitting at tables. And I think that's one of the most powerful symbols uh, and, and teachings to come out of the Synod, which is that this is the way of doing church now. This is what we're trying to do, this synodal way, which is listening, and of course, this conversations in the Spirit, which we can talk about later. But it's everybody on an equal footing. And one day, a couple days, when Francis was at the head table with uh, the different members of the, the Synod, the Secretariat, uh, there was a woman running the meeting, and that happened several times, right? And someone pointed out to me that uh, there is a meeting going on of the church where the Pope is present and he's not presiding. And so you have a woman running the meeting uh, from that main table. And that's, that's a powerful symbol, too. And that was noticed. Uh, so I think that that's one thing, kind of the, the way of, of being church. But the other thing is in these spiritual conversations, um, people had to listen. Right. So you had the you know, Cardinal Archbishop of whatever, listening to some 22-year-old young woman, you know, from St. Joe's talk about something, or, uh, you know, a, a laywoman from Malaysia talking about her experience. And that that's really different. I mean, they had to listen, they had to process. And um, I think that makes for, uh, you know, a bit of a conversion on, on people's uh, parts. It's hard sometimes. It was hard, I will say, it was hard for people to listen because, you know, they're they're just not in that mode a lot of times. Even people jobs. that might be like well-intentioned and want to listen. Yeah. And, and, and let me say, like, there were times that I saw, without breaking confidence, I saw several times facilitators, lay facilitators usually, saying to an archbishop or a cardinal, uh, archbishop, excuse me, they, they haven't finished yet. This is not the time to respond. And <laughs> you could see them, but they got it. You know, they got it. And um, that's that's part of that's part of the learning. That's part of the conversion that goes on. Yes. And it's the basic point that, that you know, we're all baptized. Men don't get a different baptism from women. And there's equality in dignity from baptism. And that's the fundamental message of the synod. And it brings this document brings it out very strongly. Uh, I, I was very struck, Jim, by the focus it does on baptism in, in this document and on confirmation. It's what the priests in the parish will be wanting to know something about and what the folk in the pews will want to know about. And the tables were an icon of that equality, equal in dignity in the church before God with different roles. 
Sam, our editorial table at America is, of course, a bit more of an oval. I don't know if you're. That's just because that what that's what fits in the room. <laughs> so we're not gonna we're not we're, we're not gonna be looking for a new editorial uh, table. Not unless someone wants to make a donation sufficient to knock down walls. <laughs> All right, you heard it here first. I, I will say one of the things that struck me was, and I don't think I got this until week two. Uh, we were told that this was a synod on synodality. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I think Matt Malone said it's like uh, your Brad Sam's predecessor. It's like saying a meeting on meetings, which is kind of deadly. But, and I thought, well, are we going to be talking the whole time about what synodality means theologically, you know, kind of grounding in a scripture or whatever. And I thought that seems really odd, but it dawned on me that what we're doing is we're doing it. We're, we're, we're acting it out. We're, we're engaging in it. We are being synodal through these conversations in the spirit. And in a way, trying to model that for the church. Now, this is the difficult thing, kind of bringing this back to the diocesan and the parish level, right? Like, what does it mean to do these conversations in the spirit or or be synodal in this kind of listening um, mode? And so, uh, in a sense, I think that the, the teaching of the synod was the synod itself and, and what we were doing. And, yes, and I, the success of the synod will depend on how much the delegates who go back, and so, for example, in the United States, the bishops and the people like yourself and the lay people who have been there will actually transmit this, first of all, in the bishops' conference, because it, it gives a, a task to the bishops' conference. You have to kind of carry this ball and then pass it down the line. And uh, I, I think it's very important to convey the message that there's a task for everybody, starting at the parishes with this document, starting at the diocese, and beginning with the bishops' conference when they meet in November, they should have this top of their agenda. Uh, Archbishop Brolio was here, but I hope he does something, because if he doesn't, the risk is that an opportunity, big opportunity, will be missed in the United States. Jerry, I wonder if I could just ask you, because you've covered many of the previous uh, synod assemblies, if you could say something about how different the structure was with the table groups and the the need for people to deliberately listen to each other from previous synods in the past. It's totally different. So. And I've spoken to cardinals and bishops who've been at eight synods before. I've covered, I think, 20 of them. And I can assure you, this is a synod without precedent in its format, in its style, and in the way the discussion has been conducted. And Jim is quite right, you know. It was, uh, and it says in the document, it's a spiritual event. It's an ecclesial event. It's a church event. It's not a political event. It's not pushing one push position or another. It, it's trying to understand what the Spirit is saying to the Catholic Church in the different countries and the diversity emerged strongly in the Synod. At this moment in the 21st century, when we have wars raging, and it says this, when we have the migration crisis across the continents, not just in, on the west coast of the United States, but right across the continents, and uh, where there's a lot of poverty and there are people running away because of climate change. It was so deeply immersed in the reality of today's world, but also in the reality of parish life. That, that's what struck me, and diocesan life. It's not distant from people, and that's what I take from the report. Now, I feel like we've done a good job kind of summarizing some things, some takeaways from the Synod. I do want to dive into this document itself. Um, so, Jerry, maybe I'll, I'll direct this first question towards you. What is this document? What is it meant to be? What is it? Is it going to be looked on historically? Is it normally this long? 
No, normally it would be a document, but uh, first of all, you should remember this is the first session of a two-session synod. So what we're like is you have a, a football game. People have gone into the dressing rooms now to this is half rest, time. but also to prepare for the second half. And that's this document is exactly in that space. It's meant to uh, be something that is taken up, first of all, by the bishops' conference, secondly, by the local bishops, by parish priests, by religious communities, read, and then there are different parts of it which are of greater relevance to the local scene. So is it more of a like an instruction manual for these next 11 months? Is that what you were hearing, Jim? Yeah, it's a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to do that I don't think there was time to do was we wanted to do a little bit of a preface that said what this is for. So it actually has a couple purposes. One, uh, it is uh, content for people to, to go back in their parishes and then in their dioceses uh, to reflect on and then hopefully to tell us, uh, tell synod members and tell their bishops and their pastors uh, what they think so that we can bring it back to uh, the synod in October 2024. The second thing is that it'll be it'll be providing a kind of template for the rest of our um, uh, deliberations in 2024. So it's also directed towards us, right? And then thirdly, it's kind of just a summary. It's a summary of of where we've been, and it's supposed to reflect, you know, kind of what the discussions were. And I'm glad I'm saying this on the podcast. People are, you know, meant to use it and reflect on it and meet in these small groups if they can, you know, or just kind of reflect on it yourself. And then, you know, in some way. Uh, you know, sort of make your make your opinions known. Uh, so it's it's all three of those things. Yes, there's homework for different sections, for the bishops' conference, for the local bishop, for the local parishes, for theologians, for other a activists in different areas. So and canon lawyers, the, 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 there are tasks in it. They call them proposals or things for consideration. So people can direct all of their feedback. I'll, I'll just put your email in the show notes. Then. You know, it's funny. Yeah, I get just... <laughs> a lot of it on social media, of course, uh, and it's been that's been really helpful. People have actually, it's very touching. I've gotten letters here in Rome from people. And so I was really conscious of, uh, particularly with LGBTQ people, uh, bringing that feedback into the tables and into the discussions. And a lot of people told, I, quite a few people, especially at tables, told stories, right, of pairs. There's such a wealth of of, of background. And really one of the amazing things was, I mean, your tables were from around the world and I mean from everywhere. And it really challenged the kind of myopic view of the church like every day. So as you know, we're here in Rome covering the Synod on Synodality, which is going to have huge implications for the church around the world. And so there's no better time to tell you about an upcoming conference at the University of San Diego that's going to explore what it means to be a Catholic college or university today. It's called Lighting the Way Forward, and it'll look at timely topics like climate change, structural racism, polarization, and lack of trust in institutions. They're asking really honest questions that affect us all, just like they're doing here at the Synod. The conference is taking place from January 11th to 13th, 2024. And this speaker lineup is pretty dynamite. We've got Cardinal Robert McElroy, who's a frequent writer in America and also a friend of the podcast. Vincentian Father Dennis Holtschreiter, who is the president of the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, and our friend and colleague, Glory Purvis, host of the Glory Purvis podcast. For the complete lineup and to register for the Lighting the Way conference, 
visit their website at sandiego.edu slash lighting. That's sandiego.edu slash L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. Are you an animal lover, musician, mother, daughter? If you are, or someone you love is, Saints for Sinners has a unique medallion just for you. Each Saints medallion is one of a kind and beautifully handcrafted in New Orleans. Saints for Sinners medallions make great gifts for any occasion. Speak to everyone's experiences and passions and offer you and your loved ones a wearable reminder of your saint's guidance, perspective, and comfort. And most of all, the hope your saint should bring to your life. Each medallion is imported from Italy and hand-painted in New Orleans. And you can buy them at saintsforsinners.com. Who's your saint? Take the quiz and find out at saintsforsinners.com. Take the quiz and get a new suggestion. All right, so I thought maybe we could go around a little bit, just go through the document and, and point out some things that that stood out to us. Um, Sam, I'll give you the opening. So but one thing I noticed, particularly in the opening section of the document, is in the reflection on what synodality itself consists of, one of the questions that seemed to come up was, so technically, this is still the synod of oh, bishops, yes. but lots of non-bishops present, and many non-bishop members with voting rights in the yeah. synod for the first time. And there's a couple places in the document where the document says, you know, some members felt, some members felt, some members felt, and lays out a few different options. And this was one of those key places where some people thought this was great. Some people thought, no, this has to be a synod just of bishops. Some people thought we needed some additional reflection on how these structures interacted. Yeah, I'm smiling because there's some things I can't say, but uh, I will say that that is an accurate representation of what happened. I was surprised at how much that came up. And I think that, as Jerry was saying, because this was so unusual and the first time that you have so many non, as they call them, non-bishops, non-bishop voting members, uh, there was a question about what this is. Uh, There were questions, should we rename this? Should we be calling this the Assembly of the People of God? I think a lot of bishops were... um, questioning kind of what is the authority of a synod like this uh, in terms of sort of the College of Bishops. But also um, people were very clear that, you know, Paul VI and Francis set up a synod of bishops, and so they wanted it, I think, also to be seen as juridically legitimate. That was one of the, that was one of the, the sort of questions. So, so, but it's, you know, it's, it's something that we discussed, and, you know, who knows where that's going to go in the future. But I think Cardinal Schoenborn, uh, Jerry and I was at the press conference, uh, said that, yes, this is still a synod of bishops. Is that It is an expanded synod of bishops, you know, with consultation, because a synod of bishops is consultative anyway, that this is consultation from from with the people of God, which I thought was a great answer. And and, and I guess is the sticking point that people are voting or that they're present at all? Because well, obviously non, non-bishops have been present in past synods. Well, that they're voting and that it, a, it is, is it a synod of bishops when you have non-bishops there? Um, and I thought, as I said, I think Schoenborn answer that quite well. Yes, and it's a very interesting thing because if you see the in the document, they keep raising questions as, how do we define this exactly? Mm-hmm. And they, I'm interested that they mention, well, we have to look at various uh, things which we've already got. There is the Amazonian Ecclesial Conference which has gone beyond the bishops' conferences in the in the different countries and become a conference of nine countries, nine bishops' conference, where there are lay people as a central part of it. It mentions that. Mm-hmm. And then it speaks about the Australian experience of a particular council. Basically, what comes out of this document 
is this whole question needs to be studied a little more, but right now we're going ahead with this formula. That's right. Well, and That's I think right. it's actually something that's characteristic of the development of structure in the church that, in a sense, first we start doing it, and then you know we sort of define and codify the the system by which we we understand it and how it fits into the legislation. Sometimes that comes along a little, a little bit later rather than being you know designed from the thirty thousand foot view. Well, and I also think many of us, when the list came out, were focused on the people who were not bishops. So that's an interesting addition. That's interesting. That's interesting. And maybe, you know, some surprise wild card cardinals or bishops. And and the occasional Jesuit journalist. And the occasional Jesuit <laughs> journalist. I think what really surprised me when I went to the retreat in Sacrafano, um, which was our first three days, at the first mass, we all went in and, you know, 80% of the people were vested in, in, you know, skull caps and everything. And I thought, boy, this really is a synod of bishops. And the majority of people there were bishops and cardinals and archbishops and patriarchs and all that. So uh, it, it did still have that flavor. You know, it, it wasn't, you know, half and half. It was very much a synod of bishops, as, as Schoenborn said, but expanded. Speaking of bishops, the role of a bishop was a pretty prominent uh, topic, especially in that last module. Um, but but in general, things about church structures I, I found very interesting. You know, it's just kind of some of the proposals are like, look, we need to evaluate like what a, what is the point or the role of a bishop's conference canonically, juridically, like mm -hmm. pastorally. Like, are there things that need to go beyond that? Like you mentioned, the experience in the Amazon or the international in Australia. conferences. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, was that reflected in the discussions, that being such a major topic? Absolutely. And I'm laughing because, you know, if you have <laughs> 10 bishops at your table and, you know, two lay people and one priest, they're obviously going to be interested in those questions. And, you know, sometimes I was kind of, uh, you know, out of my depth, they would be talking about this, you know, Vatican conference and that Vatican thing, regulating this and regulating that. But again, it's that question of how does this relate to, which comes out in the document, the synod? How does the teaching authority of a bishop manifest itself in a synod? It just it's so mm -hmm. so as Sam was saying, it, it it's something that we're we're sort of reflecting on that the church has to reflect on. Can I, can yeah, I? and there's a whole. Say, I, I was really struck by some of this document where it says, you know, we must find maybe a way of evaluating how a bishop is performing in mm. his diocese. That is quite extraordinary. Mm. Also, evaluate the criteria mm. for the selection of candidates mm. to be bishop. Evaluate how the nuncios in a given country. And I, I really was going very, when I saw very, that. very uh, radical here. Yeah. And I think a lot of the popular media might miss this real revolution because. Francis in Evangelia Gaudium, which he published in 2013, he said, he, he spoke about the need for a conversion in the whole church and a straight change of structures. And this is what is happening in this document. One of my headline takeaways for myself was the church needs HR, was sort of like a something I saw over and over again in this document, forms of evaluation. I think if you did a control find for that, I think it would come up a lot. Um, role of bishops, but also pontifical appointments too. It's it's yes. not just limited to you know like mm -hmm. if there's a nuncio somewhere that's doing a bad job. This this might sound obvious to people who live and work in the real world, right? That there are you you do something and you evaluate it, you make tweaks and move on. But a, a lot of these structures, for a lot of historical reasons, are not really in place in the church right now. Well, you know the other big thing that came up, which surprised me, and it came up 
constantly. Now, I didn't know this was a thing, is that maybe you know that finance councils are mandated for parishes. Parish councils are not. And that's in the document, too. Mandated parish councils, which, of course, is a sort of reflection of synodality. Both both parish-level pastoral councils, but Mm -hmm. also a proposal to mandate diocesan pastoral Mm -hmm. councils as well. And this is what Vatican II opened up, but which has never been implemented. So, And this synod is implementing the insights and the teaching of Vatican II. And I, I think we've got to get it very clear that it keeps coming up in the document, going back to reference Vatican II. Absolutely. I want to just keep this conversation moving, um, because I know this is something that people were very interested in, um, especially in the United States ahead of the Synod, was the role of women in the Church and also the possibility of or uh, including women in the diaconate. Um, the document does mention this. It spends a considerable amount of time on it, um, without you know stopping short of saying no or yes on anything, it it calls for for greater study on the issue in the next year. Is that a, is that an accurate? Uh, it, it is an accurate description. It's also an accurate description of the tenor of the discussion, uh, which was uh, I would say much more open and direct about uh, women in the diaconate that I have ever heard in a, a church meeting. I mean, people were uh, very blunt about that without using words like leadership or, I mean, they talked about women's ordination to the diaconate, but also you'll find in the document, very interesting, which came up, uh, we need to look at the diaconate overall, which is really varied, you know, from place to place. Uh, So I thought that was fascinating. And also, what would it mean to reimagine, this is in the document too, what would it mean to reimagine the diaconate overall, and then where would women fit into that renewed ministry? Just just fascinating. Yes, I think there were several points, uh, and as you say, it's really has gone beyond what many people had imagined, or indeed what the commissions set up by the Pope, two of them, to, to study, study, to study the issue, yeah. because it spoke about the diaconate has been seen as a path to the priesthood. But the diaconate should be seen separate from that, not necessarily as a path for the priesthood. And therefore, then the second point was the diaconate has tended in those churches that have it, and some, it says very clearly, don't have the, 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 the permanent, the permanent diaconate. diaconate. It's been, they focused more on liturgy, whereas the diaconate should, was set up for dealing with the poor and the... A ministry of service and and Different role. And they said, we should study that. So there's a whole, I think, a whole open discussion being pushed by the the Synod Mm -hmm. in this whole field. Jim, if I could just ask quickly, because the document says, you know, it mentions the two commissions that Pope Francis set up to study the historical question of women in the diaconate. And then it says, it, it asks for further research, theological and pastoral research, and then asks for the results of that research to be presented to the next session of the of the assembly, so next October. What are people hoping to learn? Their hope, well, first of all, <laughs> I think it says, if you if you correct me, you have it in front of me, if possible, right? So it does say if we're, possible. We're pretty polite. So Francis had those two commissions that I think were instigated by the UISG, uh, yes. by the Women's Religious and then one did its report, which was not released. And then the second did its report, which we also haven't seen. And so that's our desire. We as Synod members would like to see the results of those reports if possible. Because you know, those are really great scholars that were working on it. Um, the, the history of it and also kind of the theology behind it. That discussion 
was a very long discussion, and, and it made up a significant part of, of the Synod. Yes, and the, the other part of the discussion on women, I think, is really goes along to what has been requested in, I think, all the continental synods, the greater role for women in decision-making, in positions of responsibility, in finding perhaps new ministries. And I was struck especially also, and they said, we want women in the formation of priests in the seminaries. So there's such scope, and I hope that in both our podcasts, uh, Zach, and then in in, uh, inside, inside the Vatican. Vatican, that we can give a whole mm. deep dive to some of these chapters, and one especially on the women, because I, I think it will be of great interest to many of the young women who feel, you know, the church isn't giving space to women. I think they they will discover something here. Yeah, let me just say that the women at the conference. Um, uh, I mean, at the Senate, the women at, members me, in the, in the hall, uh, fifty-four. Were, yeah, were very direct about this topic. So, in other words, it wasn't just we need to find ways of women being whatever. It was, it was, it was talking about women's ordination to the diaconate, and that I found that really refreshing. And again, to Jerry's point, this was something that we were able to talk about without worrying about it. You know, having to be kind of on the news that night, and people could feel free to kind of talk about it and also respond. You know, because there were people that were not fans of that topic. Well, another example of something that I thought was pretty direct in the document was uh, in the section on women, cases of labor injustice and unfair uh, remuneration, especially for women religious, it's that need to be addressed. So acknowledging very clearly that there are some structural injustices in the church here too. Also on the question of abuse, mm-hmm. abuse of women and also abuse of authority, sexual abuse, abuse of power in terms and cheap labor. Mm-hmm. It speaks about cheap labor. I mean, so many places the sisters have been mm-hmm. cheap labor in the church. It's really putting the reality on the table. And of course, the synod started by moving from experiences, not from ideas. And that's where they've come. Yep. want to pivot to an issue that was obviously at the top of your mind, given your ministry back home and around the world, welcoming LGBT Catholics. This acronym doesn't show up in the final document, mm-hmm. but it does make some allusion to issues of sexual mm-hmm. morality and welcoming mm-hmm. people in a difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what your reaction to... Sure. Yeah. I want to say, first of all, that we had a lot of discussion around that in the tables. I can't speak for every table, but most tables, you know, a lot of people would come up to me and kind of report. And in the plenary sessions, which was, you know, in front of the whole group, people uh, chiming in, And I would say that they were two different uh, ways of looking at it. The first way was, you know, I made an intervention and other people did about kind of personal experiences of LGBTQ people, right? Not kind of sharing stories, asking for more outreach. The second would be, I would say, characterized by some members who felt that this was a form of colonization, neo-colonialism, or in an ideology that were sort of being forced upon them, focusing on homosexuality as an intrinsic disorder or an objective disorder. Um, Just to clarify, sure. so like that that being like an issue that's only relevant to the church correct. in certain parts yeah, of the world. Correct, yeah. Yes, uh, also linked to the question of aid. Mm-hmm. If you, we don't give you aid right. by some government saying we don't give mm-hmm. you aid unless you accept this kind of mm-hmm. agenda. And and uh, that was that's resented mm-hmm. in some parts of the world mm-hmm. very strongly. 
Yeah, so there was a considerable conversation about that at the tables. You know, there was a module called Love and Truth, and of course, you know, that would come up, obviously. And also, it was wonderful for me. I think one of the most synodal things that I felt that I was able to do is to talk to people one-on-one, you know, had made interventions that, you know, were kind of different from the way I looked at it. Yeah, it's not in the final document, but there are, as you said, sexual identity indications of the desire for the church to kind of understand it more anthropologically. But, you know, one of the things I want to say is that the discussion happened, right? And I I wish that were a little bit more reflected in the document. The document's not perfect, obviously. And the conversation has begun. And I was really touched by two things. I was touched by people who I didn't disagree with. I mean, I really didn't disagree with, and who really disagree with me. And we really have conversations. I mean, polite conversations. And the second thing is the number of people that came up to me and said, thank you for your work, you know, and thank you for what you're doing. So it was discussed. And I hope that LGBTQ Catholics uh, can know that they were present at the Synod. And they're going to be present at the next Synod because they're present in the church. One of the things we've heard over and over again at the various press briefings is that this was not a, a single issue Synod. Definitely not. Right. I, you know, Sam, I there's going to be a lot of people in the media that are going to look to to this issue and maybe a couple others. Like, what what is your sense of how the rest of the world should look at this or even people listening to this if this is an issue that was you know really important to them i think that one of the things i've seen happen in the synod and part of this is having the chance to you know watch it a little bit through through jim's eyes but also seeing the way that even just being in rome for the last week and seeing um you know occasionally running into delegates on their way in or out of um the hall etc you're, you're all very easy to spot by the, the way those white lanyards These, make it yeah, very right. easy to track you down <laughs> We're used to sort of looking for what's the takeaway or who made the decision or, you know, what what is the final voice of authority saying here? And I think one of the things that is challenging but also hopeful about this synod is that it's been structured in such a way that it is not primarily about a final voice of authority at this stage. But as you've said, Jim, it's about, it's about di- the discipline of listening to each other. And in a sense, kind of amazingly, I wasn't sure this is going to work, and I, I think it has worked to a greater degree than I was able to foresee, that maybe even because of the limitations on the way the media was allowed to cover this, what has happened in, in public is more an experience of listening, of watching, even of a kind of contemplation maybe, than it would have been otherwise if we had just been doing takeaways and who said what and who argued with whom. But instead, we're, we're having to digest this a little bit more slowly. And I think that's one of the things that the Synod is supposed to do for us, is to, to slow us down, to engage us more deeply with each other, and to recognize that uh, you know, on some questions that people care deeply about, the truth is there is not broad enough consensus yet in the church for, for anything big to happen. But there is also, and I think this is, this is the part of the Synod that is authentically new, but the conversation about them is now at the heart of the church instead of at the peripheries. It's been brought into the middle. We're having the conversation together, and we're all listening to it. Exactly, Sam. I see that there's a paragraph which refers to controversial questions and 
where there, as you say, there's not yet consensus, but how we address them, how we learn to talk about them, how we learn to discuss them, how we learn to get greater insights into it. It's a very important paragraph, and I, I think it deals directly with the LGBT, but there's a whole lot of other questions there. I would say, if I were to put in one word, this is a synthesis document which opens doors and doesn't close them. Mm-hmm. I just want to say uh, two things. One um, related to this idea of single issue synod, and the second about uh, how it was being portrayed. The first thing, I was sitting at a table once, and uh, we were talking about whether or not lay ministries should be institutionalized without being somehow clericalized. Now, I just thought anyone who thinks this is a one-issue synod and all we're talking about is LGBT people, women deacons need to sit at this table for two hours when we were talking about this. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I do want to respond to some of the things out in the media that said that uh, somehow this was stage-managed, uh, that there was a conspiracy, that it was manipulated. Uh, our tables were pretty much alphabetical order. I was sitting next to Archbishop Paul Martin from New Zealand and Cynthia Mance, I can say this because it was alphabetical, from the United States. So it was not stage-managed. Someone else made the observation that the plenary interventions were stage-managed and chosen. It was basically first come, first serve. You pushed, you know, I want a request to speak, and whoever hadn't spoken before comes up. So, So it was extremely free. No one told us what to say, what not to say. And I just want to let people know who are out there that there was no management. We were able to say whatever we wanted to say. Uh, there were no people who were sort of put together in kind of affinity groups. And I do want to say one thing. There was an article that said that, well, I'm laughing because it was so crazy. One table that I was at was kind of like all these LGBTQ activists, which was, you know, ridiculous. Um, so what was it? It was a, it was a free and open exchange uh, of people who were, uh, you know, from all over the church, all over uh, sort of creation in terms of their their perspectives on things. And yet we were able to talk to one another and laugh with one another and make jokes. One of the things at the very end of the table discussions was everyone always wanted a picture. And these are people from all over the map, theologically and geographically. Every, oh, let's take a picture of our group. We love our group. And I, I thought that was a, that was a beautiful thing and, and very, um, I found very moving, actually. Real quick, as we come to a close here, I'm, I'm just curious, Jerry, what are you going to be watching for in the coming months as we take this halftime, as you mentioned? First thing I'm going to be watching for is what happens from the bishops' conferences, mm. how they take the baton and pass it down to the parishes and, and the diocese. Uh, if that doesn't happen, they will be lacking in co-responsibility for a synodal church. Because this is what it's about. Everybody has to play their part. And the first part in this issue is with the bishops, with the bishops' conference. The second part is with the local bishop. The third part is with the priests, the parish priests, and then the different religious orders and such like. And uh, the synod mentioned the necessity of parish priests being involved. And uh, in fact, the issue came up in the synod, you know, there's, is there any parish priest present? And then it also opened the possibility of having additional fraternal delegates at the, in, the, in the next synod. So there could be additions to the next synod, but the great thing is that the same, substantially the same members, same participants who were in this synod, 365 of them, 364 plus the Pope, will be at the next synod and perhaps some additions. 
Yeah. And I would just add to what Jerry said um, that, uh, you know, another group would be uh, people who aren't bishops, like the lay people in their parishes. There were quite a few going back and, you know, kind of listening themselves. And, you know, I think also the other thing to to happen uh, is for the members to kind of really reflect on what the experience was like. It was really intense. And now we have 11 months to kind of say, what just happened? Like, what, what, what was this experience like? And where was the spirit? And where am I called to grow and to deepen and to listen even more? Well, and a big role is for the digital world. Mm-hmm. There's a lot about the digital world here and the digital missionaries. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Catholic media, mm-hmm. that they tell a true story and that they help explain what is happening in the church, because that, that's one of the roles, I think, of the Catholic media. And I hope that happens. So that would be a second thing. After the bishops' conference, I think the Catholic media have a big role. Mission accepted. This is where you're supposed to give a pitch to subscribe, Sam, I think right here. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so if you if you want to follow along with the Synod, if you want to know what is happening in the life of the Church, if you want to see how these proposals develop over the course of the next 11 months, and then especially what happens with them next October in the second session of the Synod on Synodality, then the best way to do that is to go to americamagazine.org and sign up for a subscription so that you can follow right along with the great work that Ashley and Zach and Jerry and Jim are all doing um, in covering the Synod. Jim, Sam, Jerry, thank you so much. Jerry, thanks for—it's been great to be with you this month. Well, Uh, I've enjoyed having support here in Rome. It's been fabulous. So uh, there was a ton in this document. We did not get to all of it, not even close. Jerry mentioned the digital center. That was a huge thing we didn't really touch on here. So um, there, there is more to this story. So make sure you're following along, as Sam said. Uh, I want to thank all three of you. And, uh, and we'll Colleen see. as well, who's Oh, yes, Colleen, Colleen and Ashley, who have been working working their tails off as and well. And then Sebastian, who was here at the beginning yes, of, of course. the Senate as well. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Pleasure. Thank you. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.